Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. My name is Doug Taylor. Glad to have you with us. And tonight, we're starting with Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30. And the verse reads, The fruit of a righteous one is a tree of life, and a wise man acquires souls. The fruit of a righteous one is a tree of life, and a wise man acquires souls. So, the first thing we do before we start to get into analyzing is we want to ask every possible question that we can think of around this verse that might not be immediately clear. So if you were to think of all the questions you would ask, not, we're, trying, we're not trying to get to answers yet, we're just trying to get questions on the table, uh, what questions would we want to ask in order to understand what King Solomon is writing to us in this verse? The fruit of a righteous one is a tree of life, and a wise man acquires souls. Any thoughts about questions that come to mind as you read this verse? What might we want to ask? James, excellent, thank you. What, what is the fruit? What is the fruit of a righteous one? Uh, it's obviously probably some kind of a metaphor or an allegory. So what exactly does that mean? And Miguel, thank you. What does it mean to acquire a soul? That's kind of an odd, odd way for King Solomon to put that. I mean, uh, how, do you, how do you exactly acquire a soul? Very good. Very good questions. Uh, and Naomi, uh, chapter and verse is Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30. 11, verse 3-0. And I would add to, uh, to James and Miguel's questions, um, how is the fruit of a righteous one a tree of life? And, and what does that phrase mean? And what is the connection between the first half and the second half? We've found in our study of Proverbs that what King Solomon often, but not always, does is make a contrast in the first half of the verse and the second half of the verse. And usually it's in the form of a wise person does this, but a foolish person does that, or a contrast between a righteous and evil person, or a wise person and a fool, or something along that line. So, what, what kind of contrast is it that uh, King Solomon's making, if he's making a contrast? There's got to be some connection. He didn't just, you know, make up a bunch of phrases and throw them in a pot and arbitrarily pull them out and then tack them together. So there, there must be something that he's trying to get across to us. And Naomi, yes, what's, what's the tree of life? An excellent, excellent question. So I'm going to suggest that the fruit of the righteous is the wisdom that comes out of his mouth. So we're talking real ideas here, true ideas, uh, teachings of wisdom and understanding, uh, the kinds of things that we would expect a righteous person uh, to say. Uh, and it also could be the, uh, what he's doing. Uh, his good deeds, the, the deeds that a righteous person undertakes and that someone else may observe. 
So, to the person who listens to what a righteous person has to say, or is watching maybe and potentially uh, imitating uh, the kinds or learning from the actions that they do, that is a tree of life. In other words, it's what brings real life to a person. Um, that could come in many forms. It could come in the form of teaching. It could come in the form of individual one-on-one -on -one advice. Uh, it could even come in the form of rebuke uh, of a righteous person, you know, telling you, hey, look, you're doing the wrong thing, and here's why, and here are the consequences that you're going to get. Um, some people can't stand to be rebuked or uh, to be called on, on their, uh, their mistakes or the things that they're doing that are incorrect. But when you're getting that kind of advice from a righteous person, it's done with the best interest of the receiver in mind. It's not an ego-centered put-down. I mean, some people love to put other people down because it's a show of power and they can you know, make their ego feel good. It's sort of like, if I can make you less, I've made me more. Uh, kind of thing going on in their psychology. But a truly righteous person isn't thinking that way. He's not self-centered. He's focused on the, the big picture of life and seeing himself only as one little speck in the sea of humanity. And he sees the world in terms of systems of humanity and justice. And so when he approaches you to tell you something that you need to change, he's doing it with your best interests in mind, not something going on you know, in his own head. So if a person recognizes that they're speaking to a righteous person, then they have a huge opportunity for growth and learning. I mean, to get mentoring, if you will, from someone who really understands true ideas and the way the world works and uh, how, how life operates and consequences of all those kinds of things is a real opportunity. It's a huge opportunity. So I'm going to suggest that it's these beneficial ideas, the ideas that stem from the mouth of the righteous that are a tree of life to others and to himself because he's operating his life in accordance with those ideas uh, and thereby gaining uh, the fruit of those. Um, so as I mentioned, the fruit of the righteous could also refer to deeds and there are a number of the commentators that take that position. <clears throat> and the deeds can also be considered a tree of life for him, him being the righteous person, because of the positive consequences of those deeds, both the positive consequences that he gets practically in this life and the effect that that has uh, on the next life. Now, a wise man sees consequences, and he understands the psychology of other people, and that is a whole study in itself. So the wise man knows how to present an idea in such a way that a person will get it. And in doing so, he helps bring the other person to the truth and helps him to grow and perfect his soul and see reality more clearly. So in that sense, a wise man is acquiring their soul not as a personal possession kind of thing, but he's acquiring their soul into the world of ideas. 
the world of truth and reality. He's helping them to become more clear and to understand reality more clearly. And so I'm going to suggest to you that is what King Solomon means in the second half by a wise man acquires souls. He's bringing those people into the world of true ideas. Uh, you may recall in Genesis 12:5, the Torah talks about the souls that Abraham and Sarah acquired in Haran. And so by sharing over true ideas, Abraham isn't acquiring them like, you know, possessions of his own, but he's bringing them into the world of true ideas and the world of reality. So, how do the two halves of the verse fit together? Well, it seems that the verse is comparing the results that a person obtains from righteousness and the results that a person obtains from wisdom. They're not opposites, they're more complements in this case, where the tzaddik, the righteous person, uh, has a, a, a tree of life as the fruit of his life, if you will, the fruit of his, of his deeds, the things that he's doing, the righteous things that he's doing. And the chacham, the wise man, acquires souls through his wisdom. That is, he brings them into the fold. The wise man being very careful to understand the psychology and how to talk to each individual person and knowing, gee, in this case I would talk to this person this way, in another case I'd talk to a different person another way. Understanding that psychology in order to help them to see the true ideas and bring them into that reality. Okay. Any questions on this verse? Okay. I'll take no response as a no. Uh, and Terry and Lori, welcome. Um, thanks, Miguel. Appreciate that. Uh, Terry and Lori, we just finished up Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30, and we're about to shift over to Proverbs chapter 11, verse 31. And verse 31 reads, If a righteous one is punished on earth, surely a wicked one and a sinner. If a righteous one is punished on earth, surely a wicked one and a sinner. So, as before, let's ask, what are the questions? When you read this verse, what questions come to mind? If King Solomon were available to us, what questions would we ask him in order to thoroughly understand what it is he's trying to get across to us in this verse? <clears throat> if a righteous one is punished on earth, Surely a wicked one and a sinner. So what do you think? What kinds of questions come to mind on this verse? Okay, Naomi, thank you. Why are the righteous punished? Yeah, it certainly implies a righteous one is punished on earth. So what, in fact, does that mean?
and Naomi Good. Why is he compared to a wicked person and a sinner? Okay, good. Let me pause, Miguel, looks like you're typing something. Okay, and you, maybe all you've brought up that, that it seems that there are psalms that state the wicked are not punished uh, in this life. It's a very interesting point. Uh, and let me just add to, to the question list here. How is a righteous person punished on earth? Um, I mean, it says if a righteous one is punished on earth, well, how does that actually happen? And what is he punished for? And interestingly, we could ask the question, why does King Solomon mention both a wicked one and a sinner? He could have potentially just said one or the other. But perhaps the biggest question is, on its surface, the meaning of this verse seems pretty straightforward. Okay. If a righteous one gets punished, well, surely a wicked one's going to get punished, and surely a sinner's going to get punished. That seems so obvious. Why would King Solomon be telling us that? I mean, King Solomon isn't going to tell us stuff that, that should be really obvious to us. And Miguel, good question. Are we talking about heavenly punishment or by a court or both? Good question. Good question. And you ask, can the wicked, Naomi, you ask, can the wicked not be a sinner and the sinner be wicked or vice versa? Yes, I, I think clearly a wicked one is one who sins um, and a sinner could be wicked, although I would suggest that uh, a wicked one is in the subset of sinners, but sinners is not always a subset of the wicked. In other words, a person can sin and not be wicked. If we define a wicked person to be one who is purposefully doing evil acts, uh, to take an extreme case, a uh, Hitler, okay? Well, not everyone who sins is, you know, is at the, at the level of a Hitler. But certainly those who are wicked are sinners. So... We, might, uh, we may not have an answer, but it's, I think it's important to keep in mind what the, that King Solomon put both of those in here. And there may or may not be a reason that we're able to discern. So let's talk about the righteous being punished. Now, we've been approaching the book of Mishlei, the book of Proverbs, from a generally uh, very practical basis. This is a book about life on earth, about the practicalities of uh, the lives that we face and deal with on an everyday basis. So I'm going to suggest that punished on earth does not mean that Hashem specifically reaches out and whacks somebody for doing something wrong. Uh, Sometimes we think of punishment that way. Okay, if you did something wrong, you have to be punished. But then we could stop and ask, well, what is the purpose of punishment? 
And the purpose of punishment is not vengeance. Uh, although that idea tends to pervade, I think, certain societies. Well, somebody did something wrong, so you have to whack them. Want whatever a whacking looks like. Maybe it's you put them in prison, maybe it's you hit them, maybe it's this or that. But the whole purpose of punishment, I would submit, there's, there are really only two, uh, two purposes. Number one, uh, a person might be incarcerated, uh, that is, put into prison or executed, in order to protect society. It's a practical thing. Uh, I mean, if you have somebody out there who is a serial killer, uh, you can't have people like that roaming around on the streets. So the society will either lock that person up so they can't do other people harm, or execute them. So that's a practical thing. The other practical purpose of punishment, I will suggest, is in order to change behavior. Now, if you think about, um, uh, you know, a small child when they're uh, five years old, and they go running out into the street, not paying attention to whether there are cars coming, a parent might choose to corporally punish the child and spank them or slap them a little bit in order to create an association of pain with running out into the street. Okay? The whole idea is not because the parent's mad and wants to take it out on the child, or it certainly shouldn't be. The idea is to change the child's behavior because the child's safety is in danger there. Now, fast forward that to adult years, and we certainly don't want people to be, you know, robbing banks and beating up other people and doing other kinds of things. So there will be punishments that society creates with the intent of curtailing uh, or steering people away from certain kinds of behavior. So when in the in the context of Hashem, uh, then punishment would be something that is designed to help the person because Hashem is benevolent so uh, he wants to uh, wants people to come around to the proper understanding of things or at least that's my understanding of Torah so I would suggest that uh, punishment on earth refers to two possible things it refers to either the natural consequences that God built into the systems of the world. Let's take that one first. And that those consequences operate if a righteous person makes a bad decision or does a bad action, even if they're righteous. If they do something wrong, they will get consequences. Um, and those could be, you know, very simple. I mean, if... <laughs> The righteous person sticks their finger in a, you know, in a light socket. They're going to get zapped just like anybody else because that is a, a mistake and a natural consequence. There are natural consequences of making bad business decisions. There are natural consequences of making bad decisions with regard to uh, dealing with other people. Uh, there are natural consequences of making bad strategic decisions, whether it's in business or in armies or whatever it might be. <clears throat> and a, a righteous person will get those. Now, if they make a mistake, or they analyze the situation incorrectly, I would suggest they will get a punishment, and the punishment would be the consequences of that action. The other possible possibility is that God's personal supervision 
will step in and do something to them as punishment for uh, what they've done. Again, my understanding would be that punishment would be carefully designed to help them in the correction of their behavior. So, when we talk about our righteous one is punished on earth, we're talking about a situation that uh, I think speaks to God's benevolence to us, that it's either a consequence of the laws of nature, which gives the righteous person feedback on their behavior, so that they can analyze it and say, hmm, that certainly wasn't very pleasant. What happened here and what mistake did I make so that I can undo whatever caused me to make that mistake so I won't make it again? Okay, that would be one approach. And the other would be God's personal supervision stepping in if that righteous person were on the level for that in order to, um, again, provide them information that will help them to be able to grow. Now, if a righteous person gets negative consequences or punishment for poor judgments or poor decisions or poor actions, then surely that same set of systems is going to apply to someone who is wicked or a sinner. I mean, there are the laws of nature, and we've known by our studies that the wicked, uh, and generally I think one who is sinning, is operating on the basis of their emotions, not on the basis of a clear analysis of reality. And so they are bound, to, because of that, to make mistakes. Mistakes in thinking, mistakes in analysis, mistakes in their decision-making, uh, and so forth. And so uh, there will be consequences as a, as a result of that. So they will get punishment, uh, if you will, for their uh, poor decisions. They will get negative consequences just the same way as a righteous person, except the fact that they're operating on the basis of their emotions and not in accordance with reality means that they're going to get even more of those consequences, and so they're going to get even more punishment uh, than we would expect a righteous person to get, even more negative consequences, uh, if you will. Uh, and if a person uh, is wicked enough, uh, and you know, God may step in and intervene specifically uh, to deal with that person. So the verse seems to be telling us that if a righteous person uh, is punished on earth, which we see that they can be, then surely a wicked person and a sinner are going to get punished because they're not operating, uh, they're operating less in accordance with reality and true ideas than a righteous person is. So it just follows that they're going to get uh, punishment. So let me pause and, and ask, are there any questions about that idea? Okay, so here's my question. Isn't this obvious? I mean, Surely King Solomon didn't need to tell us this. I mean, if a righteous person is punished on earth, well, surely a wicked one's going to get punished on earth. I mean, that just seems to follow. Why would King Solomon be saying this to us? Any suggestions? Why do you think 
King Solomon would be bringing up this specific point. Okay, James, you mentioned to give hope. Can you expand on that a little bit? To give hope to whom and what kind of hope? I'm not sure I understand clearly what you're getting at. And Diane, welcome. Great to have you with us. Why would King Solomon say something that seems on its face to be pretty obvious? Okay, Diane, you said to remind us of how Noah was punished for feeding lions late, we need to do things on time. Okay, uh, we, we clearly get that even a very righteous person like Noah got a punishment for a transgression. So we're clearly in that, we're getting a, a clear understanding, okay, the righteous are punished on this earth. You know, nobody sort of gets away with a get-out-of-jail-free ticket. <coughs> and James, you've said that Hashem is active in all lives on earth and is reassuring us that He is active. Okay, that's a possibility. Uh, that's a possibility. And let me kind of carry that idea just down a particular direction. Here's what I'd like to suggest. That a possible reason why King Solomon may be telling us this is that it's an encouragement to pursue perfection and not to get caught up in the fantasy that there is anything to be envied in the life of the wicked. Sometimes it's possible that, uh, you know, uh, uh, Rabbi Moskowitz, I think, has mentioned that there is a certain category of people we could call righteous who they have the same desires as a wicked person, they just manage to overcome them. Uh, so they do the righteous things, but the struggle inside is still there. You know, there's a real desire to go to some of the things that the wicked people do. And it could be that what King Solomon is trying to get to here is there is nothing in the life of the wicked to be envied. Um, that, you know, we can look at certain wicked people or a sinner and, you know, we think, oh, that's a terrible thing to do. And yet a little part of us inside sort of you know, thinks, oh, it should be nice to have the freedom to do that kind of thing, but I would guilt myself to death if I went and did it. The, because there's a certain part of looking at the life of the wicked or the life of a sinner that we could say, well, you know, in a way it kind of looks good. I know that we're not supposed to do that, but it kind of looks good. And what King Solomon may be telling us here is, look, there is nothing in that life to be envied. It's not like, well, they get to do the things that really look cool and look fun and look very desirous, uh, but we're not allowed to do those things because we're trying to be, you know, follow the Torah life and so forth, but it sure, it sure kind of looks good over there. Solomon would be saying, no, it's, it's not, there's nothing good over there. It looks like that, but the reality is 
that it's a horrid life, that there's no peace in that life, a person is in conflict all the time between their emotions. Uh, we, we look, see, we look and see the outward actions. So we look and see a person maybe, you know, on television who is going and having a, I don't know, a playboy kind of life, and he's smiling, and he looks like he's having a great time, and he's jetting around, and he's doing all this, and we think, wow, you know, that kind of looks sort of good. He looks like he's having a good time. Yeah, that's what it looks like on the outside. But what's on the inside is that the wicked person and the sinner doesn't have uh, the, the kind of peace that the Torah allows us to have. Um, because by definition, they're trying to satisfy emotions, and that is a form of fantasy. And by definition, you can't satisfy a fantasy. So they are going to be constantly in conflict. So I think it could be that Solomon is saying, look, if a righteous person gets punished on earth, then surely a wicked one and a sinner. In other words, there's nothing over there that you want to have. It's not what it looks like. It's, it will create all kinds of difficulties and challenges and so forth, and that we may see externally that it looks potentially like uh, it has some pleasures associated with it, but the reality is when you add up the, the internal aspects of that, uh, there's no real pleasure there at all. Okay, and Terry and Lori mentioned, all my punishment has been for the improvement of me. Yeah, that is the purpose of punishment is for, if it's done right, is for your improvement. It's designed to bring you around to see the true ideas, which is why when, you know, negative things happen to us, one of the first things that we need to do is to go back and do an analysis of the situation. Say, okay, I just got a really lousy consequence here. What did I do that caused that, or did I do anything? Was it totally luck of the draw? Um, or was it a situation where hmm, I could have done something? Uh, interestingly, I studied with a, a karate master uh, many years ago who was, uh, as far as I understand, the only living 10th degree black belt uh, in karate. And he made a very interesting comment which uh, I either heard directly or was passed on to me by one of his students. He said, if you get into a fight, you have to do everything you can to protect yourself uh, and, and try to win, or at least extricate yourself from that situation and, and save your own life. But when that situation is over, <clears throat> you have an obligation to go back and ask yourself, what have I done that caused me to get into a situation like that? So when we get those punishments uh, or, or those consequences, the first thing to do is to go back and say, hmm, how did that happen? What caused that? Is there something I could have done differently in order to prevent that from happening? And if I have some emotion that caused me to make that decision, to take a simple example, someone uh, insults you at work and instead of just going and dealing with them directly, you write a scathing email on carbon seven other people uh, in putting them down, and as a result, create a huge firestorm of human relations difficulties that all have to be cleaned up, and it's a giant mess. 
Well, you need to go back and ask yourself, okay, what emotion was operating there that caused me to do that thing which caused this terrible consequence and this mess that I now have to clean up? It's possible that a situation was totally out of your control. Uh, but, uh, it, you know, many times there are situations that we think may look random, but if we look a little closer, we see, well, yeah, there was something that I could have done or should have, you know, taken more care of uh, or whatever. Uh, if I had a flat tire, you know, on the way to a meeting and uh, it caused me to be late for the meeting, then I could look back and I could say, well, okay, I just had brand new tires put on the car. I guess I must have driven over in it. Okay, so that's a random event that uh, in nature that I couldn't do anything about. But I also could end up looking at that situation and say, well, you know, I haven't been paying attention to maintaining my car. I've let the tires go. It's way overdue for service. I should have been looking at this stuff. I should have been taking better care of my equipment. Um, you know, there are opportunities to see where have I contributed. So the punishments or the consequences, if you will, that we get are wake-up calls and opportunities for us to see how can we improve. Okay. Thank you, Diane. Any questions that are raised by anything that we've just covered or this verse? Okay, again, I'll take no response as a no. Um, and if you do have questions along the way, please, by all means, type them in the box uh, or click your microphone icon. If you have your microphone hooked up to your computer and you'd like to uh, speak, and uh, we'll, we'll take care of those. So let's move on. Uh, we're on to Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1. First verse of chapter 12. And the verse reads like this. One who loves Musser loves knowledge, but one who hates reproof is boorish. One who loves Musser loves knowledge, but one who hates reproof is boorish. And I know some of the, comment, the, the translations that you'll have in front of you will translate the word Musser uh, perhaps as discipline or something along that line. But I'd like to stick with the uh, word, and we'll talk a little bit about, uh, about what that means. One who loves Musser loves knowledge, but one who hates reproof is boorish. What kinds of questions come to mind with regard to that verse? One who loves Musser loves knowledge, but one who hates reproof is boorish. Okay, Diane, good question. Why would a person love discipline? Or in this case, Musser, uh, if I take the, the, the Hebrew word. Why would someone love that? Uh, good question. That's okay, no problem. Miguel, very good. What's the connection between knowledge and discipline? I mean, why does it say one who loves Musser loves knowledge? It's like, well, yeah, what, what's, what's the connection there? Um, 
And why is someone compared uh, to be boorish? The one who hates reproof is boorish. And what does boorish mean? Okay, good. And, you know, at the very end, I would probably ask myself, uh, in addition to these questions, what exactly is the verse trying to tell me here? Um, not really completely clear what King Solomon is after in this. Okay, and Terry and Laura, you said because it puts up our boundaries. Uh, I'm not sure what you're referring to. Uh, can you elaborate maybe just a little bit on that? Not sure if that's referring to the first half, which I assume it is, but if you can give a little more information on that, that would help. Ah, okay, on the discipline, good. Okay, so let's start with a little bit of review. Back in chapter 10, we talked about musr, and that is the Hebrew word which is defined, I think, generally as discipline, but could be uh, defined some other ways. Rabbi Moskowitz uh, defined Musser as the science of the consequences of your actions. This is a big theme in the book of Proverbs, a huge theme. The science of the consequences of your actions. In other words, Musser teaches you how to make correct decisions in life and how to look at life correctly. It's a framework in the way that you think. And it works for you only when the learning actually affects your life. Because otherwise, as uh, has been said, you're like a donkey that's carrying books. You know, all that knowledge isn't going to do anything unless it affects your life. Now, there are two parts to Musser. First of all, there's the science of the consequences of your actions. Uh, so this is a science of life that helps you. Okay. So there's the understanding of that science. And then second, there's the application of that science, when you apply it to your own life. For example, uh, suppose you study physics. So there are really two things. There's the science of physics, understanding how things work and what makes this go and that go. And then if you turn around and use that information to build, say, a rocket ship or a car, that's the application of physics. So Musser is both the study of the science of life and the application of it. So it's two parts. And I'll submit to you that uh, the, the, uh, the Proverbs way of life and the best life that a person can have is to learn the science of life and guard it and keep it so the person makes it a part of himself. All right? Now, um, Oh my goodness, Diane, that sounds like a rather unusual event. I hope you're able to, uh, to get that possum out of your house. Now, 
a human being has free will to be guided by his intellect or his emotions, and we've talked about that before. Uh, that's, again, a major theme of the book of Proverbs. You have your intellect and you have your emotions, and the question is, which one are you going to use to make your life decisions? It's not that you get rid of one or the other. It's just a question of which one makes the decisions in your life. You can have your emotions make decisions for you and then use your intellect to support those, or you can do it the other way around. We sometimes see this uh, if you can imagine the case of somebody buying a new car and they're telling you about the new car they bought. And they say, I went to the dealer and I just fell in love with this car. And then afterwards they tell you, oh, and you know, it has the J.D. Power uh, Award for the third best service amongst all cars in its class. So what has happened there? A person went into a car dealership with the idea maybe of buying a new car, saw one that they thought was really pretty, and then, so they, they made the emotional decision to buy it on the basis of its looks and its color, and maybe how they felt sitting in the driver's seat or the smell of the new upholstery. And then they went and did the research and came up with reasons to support the decision their emotions had already made. Whereas, I'll submit to you that the Proverbs approach would be, you sit down and figure out, do I need a car? Okay? And you analyze, what would I use a car for? How often would I use it? What's the expense of running a car? What kind of car would work best for my needs? And then, is it a good financial investment to buy a new car, or to buy a slightly used car, or an even more used car? And then, do I need one that has two seats, one that has four seats, one that has four-wheel drive, and you analyze it on the basis of your situation, and then you go find, okay, what are the cars out there that meet my criteria after I've done this analysis? Not, oh, I fell in love with this one because it really looks cool and has neat lines on it. That is a case where the emotions act first and the intellect supports it. What we're suggesting in the Proverbs approach is that you make the decisions by an analysis of the situation with your intellect, and then you get your emotions to support that. Okay? You're very happy because you got a car that truly meets your logical and rational needs. So, when we talk about emotions making decisions, we could include in that things like jealousy and greed and envy. Uh, you know, another example would be a person that goes and buys a new car because their neighbor bought a new car or because everybody in their office bought a new car and they felt like they had to keep up or something along that line. Rational analysis will show that these emotions are irrational and will lead to some type of negative consequence or even destruction. Musser will show you the best possible life and the incorrectness of the other types of life. So again, it's a science of the consequences of your actions. Okay. Um, now, the first part of the verse tells us that one who loves Musser loves knowledge. Why would that be? Because if a person is interested in the science of consequences, then he will accumulate the knowledge of that science and its application. 
he'll love knowledge because he'll recognize that it helps him to be more successful by applying it from his understanding of Muslim. He is learning how to be successful in life and to live in accordance with the laws of nature, long-term consequences, and reality. So the more that he learns, the more knowledge he's accumulating about what works and what doesn't work from a rational standpoint in life. He's also learning more about himself and the emotions that drive him and how to avoid making bad decisions on the basis of those emotions. So he is loving that knowledge. A person who recognizes the importance of Musser, the science of consequences, so much that he loves it, will be a lover of knowledge. Okay, again, because they're accumulating knowledge through their study of Musser. And when a person gets consequences for their behavior and analyzes what they did and understands the consequences they received, then they learn from that. Um, and according to the Matsudas David, uh, when a person gets the reproof, he acquires knowledge that he didn't have before. So, as I've mentioned in some of the project management trainings that I give, we learn many times more from our mistakes than from our successes. When we get a reproof, that gives us some clear knowledge about how to handle that kind of situation, and that's an important nugget to hang on to in our arsenal of information to help us live a better life. Okay. But a person who hates reproof, a person who hates correction, is essentially refusing knowledge. He's like a beast or a brute. And that is my understanding of what is meant by he who hates reproof is boorish. He doesn't think through situations and thus he doesn't gain the knowledge uh, that's available from that situation. So, what's the verse telling us overall? It's contrasting two reactions to Musr, to correction. The lover of Musr, or discipline or correction, loves knowledge. Because he's accumulating that knowledge, it's helping him to be more successful. While the one who hates rebuke or correction is like a brute. He just goes after his desires with no thought to the consequences. Okay, any questions on this verse? Okay, good. And Diane, glad you're back, glad you got the possum out of your house. Okay, I think we have time for one more. So let's move on. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 2. And the verse reads, A good person will obtain favor from Hashem, but a man of evil devices will condemn. Or another translation is, A man of evil devices causes wickedness. A good person will obtain favor from Hashem, but a man of evil devices will condemn, or causes wickedness. So, what are the questions? What questions come to mind? 
good person will obtain favor from Hashem, but a man of evil devices will condemn or causes wickedness. Okay, Naomi, good, thank you. What type of favor does a person get from Hashem? In fact, what does that mean altogether when it says obtains favor from Hashem? What does that mean? Good. What else? Questions on this verse. What's the scheming? Okay. Alright. Man of scheming or scheming man or man of evil devices. What does that mean? Here's another. We've talked in Proverbs. The book is used to talk about righteous people, wise people, and so forth. But here he says a good person. What's a good person? Well, that's not a term, to the best of my recollection, that we've come across yet in our study together. And Naomi, you've, I think, mentioned what's, what's a man of evil devices or scheming. And why does a man of evil devices uh, cause wickedness? How does that come about? So, and Terry and Laura, you've asked the question, is this like the statement, what goes around comes around? Well, I think it's a little more precise than that because what goes around comes around seems to suggest, well, whatever you put out comes back to you. Uh, but it's not very precise, and I'm not sure that we always see that happen uh, in the world. Um, we tend to think of that statement, or at least in, in the people that I'm around, that statement seems to come up when it applies, but it's not necessarily a statement that we could say uh, always applies. Or I've, I've, I should say I've not analyzed it to see uh, what exactly it would mean and whether we could prove from uh, practical examples that it, it always happens. So I'd like to suggest at the outset that a good person is one who is operating toward right and true results, but he isn't a deep enough thinker to be called a wise man, and his deeds are not up to the level of a righteous man. So I'm, I'm presuming here that King Solomon picked good because he was trying to point towards something, but he wasn't going so far as to say, okay, they're wise or they're righteous. But a, my understanding would be that a good person does desire to do the good and works in that direction. And I believe one of the commentators uh, supports that, that position. So let's take that as a premise. And if that's the case, then how does a person obtain favor from Hashem? Well, in general, a man who does his best, or a woman, who does his best to operate in accordance with truth and reality is going to have more success than a person who doesn't. Now, just because a person hasn't mastered thinking enough to be called a wise man, or just because his deeds aren't up to the level of the righteous, that doesn't mean 
that he won't receive benefits and positive consequences for his actions. I mean, if we think about um, a, a perfectly uh, wise and righteous person at one end of a spectrum, and a perfectly, uh, or completely, I should say, evil and wicked person at the other end of the spectrum, there are lots and lots of degrees in between. And so just a person, just because a person isn't at the very end of the spectrum in, to the point where we would call that person a wise man, or just because his deeds aren't up to the level of the righteous, that does not mean that he won't receive benefits and positive consequences for what he does. I mean, no step along the path to wisdom and good deeds uh, necessarily is wasted. Uh, so, for example, when a student in a martial art starts training, he doesn't know anything, but he has a desire to know, and that motivates him to want to study. So, let's say he starts out in karate. So he starts out with very simple moves. Nothing fancy or complicated or uh, you know, anything stunt-like. He just starts out learning how to maybe throw a punch or block uh, or do a simple kick. And even though he can't particularly see any difference at first, every practice session helps him. There's a very interesting story that was told to me in my uh, training in martial arts uh, about red dye. Uh, that if you have a big bowl of water, a big vat of water, and you put some red dye in it, and let's say that you have a white sheet, and you want that to dye that sheet red. If you take that white sheet and you dunk it in the dye and pull it out, it's still going to look pretty white. And if you dunk it in again and pull it out, it's still going to look white. And if you dunk it in and pull it out, and dunk it in and pull it out, and dunk it in and pull it out, and do that a number of times, it's going to start taking on a little bit of a pink hue. And if you keep dunking it in and pull it out, dunk it in and pull it out, dunk it in and pull it out, it's going to get, over time, darker and darker and darker. And if you do that enough times, it will turn red. Now, it takes a lot of dunkings to get it that way. And I understand that if you're really trying to make a, red, a white sheet red, you'd probably just dunk it in the dye and leave it. But we're trying to create a, a, an allegory here. Every time you dunk the sheet in and pull it out is like doing some good deed or some small wise action. You, or being exposed to real ideas or sitting through a class like this. You can't necessarily tell the difference in you from the person that you were at the beginning of the class as compared to the person that you are at the end of the class. Just the same way that a, a martial arts student goes in and trains, well, there's not a whole lot of difference between how good they are at the beginning of any particular class to compared, compared to at the end of that particular class. But if you keep training over and over and over and over, small incremental changes are happening every time you do that. And so eventually, just as the dye turns red, constantly involving yourself in the world of learning will have an impact over time because small little changes are being made. And you can't necessarily tell the difference in color of that sheet 
at the beginning of any individual dunking versus at the end of that dunking when you pull it out. But if you do it enough times, it will turn red. So the Malbum, as Malbum puts it, the good person, one who has uh, what Malbum refers to as simple thoughts or whose deeds are for good and right ends, he will gain the positive consequences from those efforts. And in terms of the laws of nature, which is one of the two main systems that Hashem created under which we operate, that person should reap positive consequences, thus obtaining favor from Hashem. In addition, it could be that his noble intent may cause his thinking to be on a level where God relates directly to him, through him, or excuse me, directly to him through divine providence. And so uh, the person may obtain favor through that system as well. <clears throat> so the favor from Hashem is, I will submit, a result of the fact that the person has deeds that are for good and right ends. He may not have the depth of wisdom and he may not have uh, the, the deeds enough to be declared a righteous person, but there's an intent there and actions that are moving that person in the right direction. And so the verse, I think, is suggesting to us that a person like that will obtain favor from Hashem. They will get the positive consequences of the actions that they're doing. And it could be that if a person's on the right level, that Hashem may intervene directly for them. Now, a man of evil devices, which is translated by Art Scroll as a scheming man, is, in my view, one who is intent on evil. We're not talking about somebody who just makes a boo-boo here. We're talking about someone who is intent on doing evil. And the devices, when it talks about his evil devices, the evil devices could be his plans or his aims. So we have someone here who is clearly focused on doing evil. Okay, not somebody just bumbling along in life making mistakes accidentally. So then how does a man like that condemn or cause wickedness? And Rashi and Matsudos indicate that his evil brings condemnation upon others. Rashi cites Ecclesiastes 9.18, which states, but one sinner destroys much good. Now this could happen on a large scale, like a whole society, uh, or, oh, excuse me, a whole city or a whole society, or even the whole earth. Or it could happen on a small scale, like a working team. Uh, I mean, imagine a working team of, say, five people. We're all trying to build a bridge across a river. Now, if they're all working together in a collaborative way, they'll have the best chance of success. But suppose one of them is a person of evil devices, a wicked person, while the other four are good people. That wicked person can end up sabotaging the whole project. It's not just the project is going to be one-fifth less effective. The evil that he does can infect the entire project or affect the entire project. Similarly, one evil person in a city can affect the entire city and cause condemnation to it. So imagine if a king were to visit 
uh, a conquered land of a thousand inhabitants. And the people were greeting him and treating him very positively. Okay, he might feel benevolent toward him. But imagine if they're all treating him well except one wicked person who sets up sabotages for the king's visit and nasty tricks and cruel insults all aimed at the king. Can you imagine how much damage that one wicked person could cause? I mean, that one wicked person could cause condemnation for the whole city. He could be doing way more damage than just one one-thousandth because he's only one of a thousand people. It could be that the king could very well condemn the whole city because of the actions of that one wicked person. So we see a very interesting contrast in this verse. The first half shows that a good person, not somebody wholly righteous or wise, just someone working toward good ends, can obtain favor from Hashem, the creator of the universe. At the same time, the second half shows how a person of evil devices can cause condemnation or wickedness for many more than himself. So we could say that the verse seems to be talking about the magnified results of a person's actions, how uh, their actions get magnified in whatever direction they are choosing to go. Okay, any questions on this verse? Okay, in that case, we'll stop here for the night, and I thank you all for joining us.